Chapter 23 is abdominal, hematologic, gynecologic, genital urinary, and renal emergencies. So an introduction, abdominal pelvic pain has many causes and be, can be caused by serious underlying conditions. Care for abdominal pelvic pain is gonna be mainly supportive. Manage any obvious life threats that we see, make the patient comfortable, transport the patient to the hospital. Hematologic disorders are disorders of the blood and its components. Gynecologic emergencies can present with abdominal pelvic pain, vaginal bleeding, and some of these gynecological emergencies can be life-threatening. And renal disease is common. EMTs commonly encounter patients undergoing dialysis. So an acute abdomen. Acute abdomen is a term that refers to acute abdominal pain. So patient just suddenly starts having abdominal pain. It may also be known as acute abdominal distress. And if a patient's complaining of abdominal pain, there are roughly 100 different causes of abdominal pain. So are we going to be able to pinpoint exactly what's causing it? Probably not. Is it important that we pinpoint exactly what's causing it? No. Supportive measures is basically all we can do. So regardless of the cause, the goal of EMS treatment is going to be supportive. Patient is going to need imaging and lab work more than likely to get a definitive diagnosis of what's causing their abdominal pain. So the abdominal structures and functions. The abdominal cavity ex extends from just below the diaphragm all the way down to the pelvis. Just like in the thoracic cavity, we have that pleural lining that lines the chest and the lungs. Inside the abdomen, we have the, peri uh, the peritoneum, the lining of the abdominal organs and wall. The parietal peritoneum lines the abdominal cavity, the abdominal muscles, and the visceral peritoneum is in contact with the organs themselves. Not all of the abdominal organs are located inside the peritoneum, though. Organs can be located in located the intraperitoneal or inside the peritoneum or retroperitoneal space outside of the peritoneum. Your kidneys, for example, they are not lined by the peritoneum. That is retroperitoneum. The abdomen, abdomen sorry, is divided into four quadrants for references. We've talked a little bit about this, assessing the abdomen. We palpate all four quadrants. So there's those four quadrants. So again, when we're assessing the abdomen, we can use these quadrants to identify where the pain is. Patients having pain in that left upper quadrant. And again, when we palpate the abdomen, we need to palpate all four quadrants of the abdomen. You also have abdominal regions. Again, this just divides it into nine spaces. And again, for just better references, you can say they're having epigastric pain. Again, it's kind of pinpoints it a little bit better. So it is important that we know which organs lie in these abdominal quadrants. So the left upper quadrant, which is abbreviated LUQ, it has most of the stomach, 
the spleen, the pancreas, part of the large intestines, left kidneys is behind the abdominal lining or in that retroperitoneal space. Right upper quadrant, most of the liver, the gallbladder, part of the large intestines, and again, the right kidney is in the retroperitoneal space. Right lower quadrant is the appendix, part of the large intestines, female reproductive organs, and left lower quadrant is part of the large intestines and female reproductive organs. So types of abdominal structures that we have. The organs in our abdominal cavity are gonna be either classified as hollow organs or solid organs. If it's a hollow organ, they contain a substance that may leak into the abdominal cavity. So with hollow organs, they're not nearly as vascular, so we're not so much worried about internal bleeding if a hollow organ is damaged. Our main concern is leaking of that content causing irritation to the peritoneum. Examples of hollow organs inside the abdominal cavity include the stomach, gallbladder, the intestines, and the bladder itself as well. Solid organs, on the other hand, are extremely vascular. So if the solid organ gets damaged, our main concern is going to be internal bleeding. So the spleen, liver, pancreas, kidneys are all classified as solid organs. On top of organs, we also have our vascular structures and that runs through the abdominal cavity as well. We have our aorta and we also have the inferior vena cava. Again, just an illustration, dividing solid organs versus hollow organs, where they are in the abdominal cavity as well. And just a table that breaks them down as well. Again, just list those organs, and it also lists their function as well. So pathophysiology of abdominal pain. Abdominal pain results from one of three different mechanisms. If somebody's abdominal region is hurting, one of three things are probably going on. It can be a mechanical force that's going on, like stretching, pulling. It can be inflammation, or it can be ischemia, where blood's not able to reach that area. Types of abdominal pain that a patient may be complaining of. They can have visceral pain. If the patient has vis visceral type of pain, that type of pain arises from the organs themselves. So it's the organ itself that is hurting. Visceral pain is often you know, described as being less severe because organs do not, the internal organs do not have very sensitive nerves. They're kind of more generalized. They can't pinpoint with one finger exactly where that abdominal pain is. They're kind of just saying it's hurting in this whole area over here. Visceral pain is often described more as a dull or aching type of pain. 
and that pain may be consistent or constant or intermittent. It either can be hurting constantly, never lets up, or it can be intermittent where it kind of comes and goes. Parietal pain, on the other hand, this arises from the peritoneum. So something is damaging or touching or leaking into the peritoneum. The peritoneum is very rich in nerves. So patients with parietal pain often describe the pain as being much more severe. It's an 8, 9, 10 out of 10 on our pain scale. It's also more localized. They can, with one fingertip, point exactly where that pain is the absolute worst at. Pain is often described as being sharp in nature or stabbing type of pain. And parietal pain is often just constant. It does not come and go. It is a constant, never-ending pain. Patients may also have what's known as referred pain. It is visceral pain that is felt somewhere other than the organ itself. Uh, due to organs are sharing nerve pathway with a skin sensory nerve. So a patient may be having dysfunction or problems with their liver, but they're not having right upper quadrant pain. They're having right shoulder or neck pain. That's referred pain. It's because, again, the, the uh, organ and the skin are sharing those nerve pathways. And these are normally poorly localized. And again, an example, the patient may have liver problems, problem with their liver, but they're not having any pain in that upper right quadrant. They're having pain in the shoulder or neck region. Again, this just lists somewhere those common referred pain may be. Again, there are numerous potential causes of abdominal pain. In most cases, we're not going to figure out what it is. Regardless of the care, again, hospital care is usually required. Imaging, blood work, tests to determine what is causing that abdominal pain. Since it's not important that we determine what the cause is, and we're probably not going to be able to anyway, don't waste time on scene trying to determine the exact cause. Field diagnosis will be an acute abdomen and treat and go. But some common causes of acute abdominal pain. We have peritonitis. Peritoneum, anytime we see itis at the end of the word, it means irritation or inflammation. So this is irritation and inflammation of the peritoneum, the lining of the abdominal cavity. This can be caused by blood, pus, bacteria, or chemical substances in that peritoneal cavity. Signs and symptoms of peritonitis include abdominal pain, obviously that's what we're talking about, tenderness upon palpation. When we palpate the abdomen, they say it hurts when we press down on it. It can cause nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Again, if it's inflammations involved, it can cause fever and chills inside the body as well. Patients with peritonitis may lack an appetite. <clears throat> and we can also perform that Markle exam or that heel jar exam on them that we've previously talked about as well. Again, that's what we're checking for. It's the possibility of peritonitis. So again, that Markle exam, we have a patient that we can safely stand up. We have them stand up, stand on their tiptoes, 
and then we're going to have them sudden, drop down suddenly and forcefully on their heels. It's a positive Markle exam if when they drop on their heels, they complain of abdominal pain. And again, if we can't do a Markle exam because the patient can't stand up, we can do that heel jar test. Same type of test, we're just striking the bottom of their feet with our closed fist. Again, if that elicits abdominal pain, that is a positive heel jar test, again, which is an indication, higher likelihood anyway, that the patient is suffering peritonitis. We can have appendicitis. This is inflammation of the appendix. If that's untreated, the tissues of the appendix can die and then rupture. Appendicitis is more common in children than it is in adults, but it is possible to have it in adults as well. And in order to fix appendicitis, it's going to be an emergency surgery. They're going to go in there and they're going to remove the appendix. Signs and symptoms of peritonitis. They can have para-umbilical abdominal pain, which means around the belly button, around the umbilicus, localizing to the right lower quadrant. So again, they normally say that the pain kind of starts right around their belly button and then kind of moves downward to that right lower quadrant. Nausea and vomiting. You can have a low-grade fever, chills. Lack of appetite. They can have abdominal guarding, which means they're tightening those abdominal muscles up. They may even be in the fetal position with their arms covering their abdominal muscles as well. And they would have a positive Markle or heel jar exam as well. Pancreatitis is inflammation of the pancreas. Signs and symptoms of pancreatitis, pain, tenderness, distension to the ab abdomen. Pain may radiate from the umbilicus to the back, shoulders. It can cause patients to have jaundice as well, or patients with pancreatitis often may present with jaundice, again, alcoholism, et cetera. It's kind of a predisposing factor to pancreatitis. Fever, and it may be severe enough to where the patient is showing signs and symptoms of shock as well. Cholecystitis, which is an inflammation of the gallbladder. What causes inflammation of the gallbladder normally is gallstones. Often occurs between patients between the age of 30 and 50. More common in females than it is in males. And you're at a higher rate of it if you are overweight as well. Without treatment, tissue death could occur. And again, the treatment for cholecystitis is removal of the gallbladder. Sign symptoms, upper middle to upper right quadrant abdominal pain. So if we have a patient complaining of right upper quadrant pain, one of the questions we should ask, do you still have a gallbladder? Do you have issues with your gallbladder? 
tenderness to the right upper quadrant upon palpation. Increase in belching, increase in heartburn. And it can produce nausea and vomiting as well. GI bleeding. GI bleed can occur at any point in the GI tract. So from the mouth all the way down. We classify GI bleeds as either being upper GI bleeds or lower GI bleeds. So upper GI bleeds include things like the peptic ulcers, gastric erosion, and esophageal varices. Now, upper GI bleeds are more common in males than females. Lower GI bleeds include things like diverticulitis, AVMs, arterial venous malformations, and tumors. And lower GI bleeds are more common in females. So terms that we need to know when we're dealing with GI bleeds. Hematemesis, again, emesis at the end of the word means vomiting, hema's blood. So hematemesis, vomiting of blood. This uh, vomit, the blood in their vomit may be bright red in color, or it may look like coffee grounds. Again, depending on where exactly that bleed is, and if the patient's been digesting some of that blood. Hemochesia is bright red blood in the stool. And melana is dark, tarry stools that are containing decomposing blood. So signs and symptoms of a GI bleed. Abdominal pain, tenderness, those terms we just talked about, hematemesis, hemochesia, melena. Altered mental status, weakness, syncope, tachycardia, and if the bleeding is significant enough, it will lead to hypovolemic shock. And mentioned this before, but internal bleeding, there's nothing we can do for internal bleeding in a pre-hospital setting. External bleeding is a lot easier to control. So a cause of a GI bleed may be esophageal varices. These are engorged, weakened veins of the esophagus. And patients that are alcoholics that have liver disease, they are at a higher uh, instance of having esophageal var varices. But esophageal varices, when they rupture, they start bleeding heavily. And it's typically painless for the patient. It doesn't hurt, but they're just bleeding heavily, heavily. And they're bleeding so much into that esophagus that it starts coming up through their mouth. And now we have to worry about maintaining clearing an open airway. Aggressive suctioning is going to be needed. So signs and symptoms of esophageal varicine. Large amounts of bright red hematemesis. Large amounts of blood that they're throwing up. Again, no pain, no pain or tenderness in the abdomen. Indications of shock, rapid pulse, difficult breathing because they're having a hard time maintaining an open airway, cool, cool, pale, cool, clammy skin, 
signs of shock. And again, often this goes hand in hand with alcoholism. So jaundice is likely going to be present as well. So again, that's what's going on during esophageal varices. These, the veins around the esophagus are engorged and weakened, and then they rupture, draining large amounts of blood into the esophagus. Gastroenteritis, this is inflammation of the stomach, small intestine. Gastroenteritis may be chronic. They constantly deal with it or acute. And gastroenteritis is often caused by some type of infection. Signs and symptoms of gastroenteritis, it's like a stomach bug. Abdominal pain, cramping, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. May have tenderness upon palpation. Fever can lead to dehydration if the nausea, vomiting, diarrhea is severe enough. So signs and symptoms of shock in severe cases. Abdominal ulcers, these are open sores in the digestive tract, normally in the stomach or the beginning of the small intestines. And this, what's causing that is a breakdown of the lining of the structure. So the acids or so forth basically eat through that portion of the, that lining in that area. Big concern with ulcers is they may be actively bleeding or that ulcer continues to grow, continues to grow until the point it perforates and puts a hole into the intestines or into the stomach. And whatever was inside the stomach or small intestine is leaking now into the abdominal cavity. Again, just shows where those ulcers are typically located at. There's a gastric ulcer still inside the stomach. And then you can have a duodenal ulcer once it reaches that small intestine. And that's what that ulcer can look like under uh, with a scope. See right here, that area should be nice and pink, reddish. Right here you can get and it just looks like it's rotting away. And that's basically what's happening. Those acids, juices are eating through that line. <clears throat> Sun symptoms of an abdominal ulcer, sudden onset of left upper quadrant or epigastric pain. So left upper quadrant, epigastric is basically midline right under the xiphoid. Those ulcers can cause nausea and vomiting. If they're bleeding heavy enough, they can cause that hematemesis. Hemochesia or the melina, signs of shock in cases of severe bleeding. And if it does perforate, peritonitis is going to be the big concern. Intestinal obstruction. It's a blockage that interrupts the normal flow of the intestinal contents. That intestinal obstruction can include, or bowel obstruction can include the large or small intestines. Things that can cause an obstruction include tumors, fecal impaction, or adhesions. 
If left untreated, it can lead to sepsis, perforation, where again, that obstruction right there, everything starts backing up behind the obstruction to the point where the small intestine and the large intestine can no longer contain it and it perforates, leaking fecal matter all into your abdominal cavity. Intestinal infarction, where a portion of that uh, intestines is not getting good circulation because of that pressure, it's putting pressure on it, reducing circulation and peritonitis as well. Abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, with plan of constipation, abdominal distension, we press on it and it looks nice and swollen. Tenderness upon palpation, depending on which point of the obstruction they're at, we can have prominent high-pitched bowel sounds, or we can have diminished or even absent bowel sounds the longer that it goes. Hernia is a protrusion of the intestine through an opening or weakening, weak part of the abdominal wall. And this is associated with increased pressure in the abdominal cavity. Oftentimes you see it with patients trying to lift something heavy. They try to lift, that increases that pressure, forces a piece of that intestine through that abdominal muscles, and you can actually see the protrusion underneath the skin. Big concern with the hernia is that intestine is sticking out through those, those muscles of the abdominal cavity. Now those muscles may tighten down around it, causing it to become incarcerated, causing a portion of the intestine to become obstructed or reducing circulation to that portion of the intestines. Signs and symptoms of a hernia, abdominal pain, typically again with while they're lifting or straining, cause fevers, rapid pulse, tender mass at the side of the hernia. Again, you can actually see it sticking up underneath the skin. Signs and symptoms of intestinal obstruction, constipation, pain, distension, et cetera. Triple A, we've already previously talked about it, or an abdominal aortic aneurysm. It's a weakened ballooned area of the aorta. And the big concern with the AAA is if it ruptures, could cause massive internal bleeding, and a ruptured AAA is one of the most lethal causes of abdominal pain. Again, if it ruptures, they're dead. There's nothing that we're going to be able to do for it. AAAs are more, most common in men over the age of 60, but also can present pretty similar as a aortic dissection. That typically happens in the thoracic cavity. Same thing, if it ruptures, the patient's going to bleed to death very, very quick. Nothing we can do for it. Again, showing what that AAA looks like. So this portion right here is the weakened area that's ballooned. So that's where that aneurysm is located. And in this case, it did rupture, so we're having major massive bleeding. Aortic dissection, we have a damage to that inner layer of the aorta, allows blood to get in between that the layers, separating those layers out and weakening the, the vessel. Signs and symptoms of a AAA, gradual onset of lumbar, groin, or abdominal pain. 
with rupture, sudden onset of severe constant pain of the lower back, flank, or pelvis, described as could be described as a tearing type of sensation. And males may also complain of testicular pain. And they ain't gonna be complaining of that for long because again, if it ruptures, it will bleed very, very quickly. Nausea, vomiting, mottled or spotty abdominal skin because it's not getting good circulation. Pale, cool, clammy, cyanotic skin and legs, again, because it's not getting any circulation. Absent, decreased femoral pedal pulses. <clears throat> and skin below the waist may become cyanotic, cold, and mottled. So if AAA is suspected, patient states, hey, I have a AAA, I'm, I'm scheduled to have surgery tomorrow, or I'm doing a transfer from a small hospital to Lubbock for them to have a AAA replaced. If that's the case, you know it's a AAA, do not palpate the abdomen at all. If we don't know and we start palpating and we feel that pulsating mask, again, stop palpating the abdomen. Note it, document it, let the hospital know, but do not Keep playing with that triple A. Be on the lookout for shock. Rapid transport is definitely going to be indicated. Request ALS backup without delaying transport. Same thing's true. Paramedic, they're, they're not going to be able to pump enough blood or uh, IV fluid into the patient to catch up for all that's leaking out of that triple A if it does rupture. Vomiting, diarrhea, constipation associated with many acute abdominal disorders, can cause abdominal pain as well, may lead to dehydration serious enough to cause signs and symptoms of shock as well. All right, any questions so far? Pediatric considerations with abdominal pain. Questions that we should be asking parents of infants or very small children. Again, they're not likely not going to be able to speak with us and tell us where they're hurting at, et cetera. So we should ask, has a kid been more irritable than normal recently? When they are upset and crying, can you console them? Have you noticed any poor feeding habits recently? Also ask about their history of diarrhea, vomiting, urine output bowel movements, et cetera. Again, just trying to clue in, figure out what exactly is going on. Is that Could this be GI in nature? Elderly or geriatric patients, remember they have a decreased perception of abdominal pain. So they may have a very serious complaint or very serious problem, but only complaining very light abdominal pain. And they also, because of that, they often wait longer to seek medical care. And remember, they have that fear of loss of independence as well. Immunocompromised patients, those with weakened immune systems, they have a poor inflammatory response to abdominal conditions due to disease, condition, current treatments. These patients typically are sick pretty frequently. They're constantly in and out of the hospital as well. So they may also wait longer to seek care because they just don't want to go back to the hospital. If they're immune compromised, we definitely need to ask, well, have you been running fevers lately? Have you had any other type of illnesses, et cetera? 
bariatric surgery patients. Bariatric surgery is surgery that's performed in a patient to lose weight. They're at higher risk for ulcers, perforations, and obstructions to the bowel. 20% of patients that have gone through bariatric surgery are admitted to the hospital within one year of surgery, and 40% are admitted within three years after the surgery. And abdominal complaints for a patient that have had bariatric surgery, especially relatively recently, are, is a serious condition. So our assessment-based approach for acute abdomen. We need to assume that the problem is potentially life-threatening. Again, there, it may be, may not be, but we have to make the assumption because we can't really determine what's going on. Low blood pressure, syncopal episodes, pale, cool, clammy skin associated with abdominal pain, those are worrisome signs. Those indicate a serious condition. If that abdominal pain is now they're starting to show signs and symptoms of shock, low blood pressure, et cetera, that means something extremely serious is going on internally. And if patients having abdominal pain lasts longer than six hours, that is also considered an emergency situation as well. Start with our scene size up, primary assessment. We're going to form our general impression. As soon as we eyes on the patient, patients with abdominal pain may assume a guarded position, hunched over, arms across their stomach. May also find them in the fetal position as well. ABCs oxygenate to maintain pulse oxygenating at or above 94%. They're showing signs and symptoms of shock. It's high flow too. Be alert for the possibility of vomiting. Categorize the patient as high priority if they have any of the following signs or symptoms. Poor general appearance, they just look really bad off. Any altered LOC, unresponsiveness. Responsive, but not following our commands. Any indications of shock, tachycardia, hypotension, narrow pulse pressures, pale, cool, clammy skin, or those that are just in severe abdominal pain. Go through your secondary assessment, get your full sample history, ask the following additional questions. We're going to go through OPQRST, and again, with a complaint of pain, OPQRST, we need to obtain all of OPQRST. Is there a past history of abdominal problems? Have you had this type of pain before? If yes, what were you diagnosed with last time? What did they do to treat it? Have you had any changes in your appetite? Have you had any nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, etc.? What color was your last bowel movement or stools? Are you having any difficulty urinating? What was the patient doing when the distress started? Make sure that we inspect the abdomen, we just look at it, and then we palpate the abdomen in all four quadrants as well. And how we palpate the abdomen or knowing where to start, where to end, we always start palpating in the quadrant furthest away from the pain. So if the patient is complaining of left lower quadrant pain, we're going to start palpating in the right upper quadrant. 
and then slowly work our way to where the pain is. The last quadrant that we palpate should be the, the quadrant where the patient is complaining of the pain at. The reason we want to do that is if there's tenderness to that left lower quadrant, we start palpating that left lower quadrant, well, we just aggravated that pain, made it worse. So now it's going to probably move, and now they're going to say they're hurting in all quadrants when they may really not be or may not be tender in all four quadrants because we aggravated it. So we start palpating at the furthest quadrant away from the pain. The last quadrant that we palpate is where the pain is located. So again, inspect the abdomen, look, look for any discolorizations, and then palpate each quadrant, note any tenderness, rigidity, or masses. Again, palpate all four quadrants, and it's not light, just barely touching where you're getting in there and pushing pretty firmly. Abdomen sh normally should be soft and non-tender. That's normal. If everything is normal when we palpate that abdomen, that's how we would document. Abdomen was soft, non-tender upon palpation. As we're assessing and we're feeling, we're also checking for guarding of the abdominal wall as well. Voluntary guarding or involuntary guarding, and we're also checking for rigidity as well. So voluntary guarding of the abdomen means that the patient is intentionally contracting their abdominal muscles because it makes their stomach, their abdomen feel better. So if we ask them, hey, can you relax your abdominal muscles? Can they relax them? If they can, then it's voluntary guarding. If it's involuntary guarding, they can't relax the abdominal muscles. Contractions of the abdominal muscles that the patient cannot control. Again, as we're palpating, we're noting or feeling for any type of masses. Make sure that we document which quadrant the pain is located in. Do a thorough assessment. Make sure there's not any pain anywhere else in the body. Full set of vital signs, paying close attention, looking for any indications of shock as well. Some associated signs and symptoms for abdominal pain can have tenderness upon palpation, anxiety, fear, that guarded position in the fetal position or with their arms covering their stomach, rapid shallow breathing. It may be difficult for them to take deep breaths in because of that abdominal pain. Then they may present with a rapid pulse as well. Blood pressure changes from pain or shock. If the patient is in tremendous amount of pain, what would we, and they're not showing signs and symptoms of shock, what would we expect their blood pressure to be? Elevated. If I'm hurting really bad, my blood pressure is probably going to be elevated. Nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal rigidity or guarding, distended abdomen starting to swell up, fever or chills. Belching or flatulence, changes in bowel habits or changes in their urination habits, pain upon urinating, difficulty urinating, signs and symptoms of shock in severe cases, or signs of internal bleeding that's possibly leading to shock <clears throat> as well. 
care for abdominal pain. And the vast majority of, like we talked about previously, care for abdominal pain is primarily going to be supported. So keep the airway patent, be alert for vomiting, place the patient in a comfortable position. Probably laying completely flat is not going to be very comfortable for the patient. They're going to want to curl up. So have them sit up, draw their legs up if they want to, again, whatever they we can do to make them comfortable. Maintain SpO2 sats at or above 94%. Again, unless they're showing signs and symptoms of shock, then we don't care about O2 sats. They're going to get placed on supplemental O2. Especially for abdominal pain, we give them nothing by mouth, or we refer to that as being NPO. We don't want them to give them something, and that causes them to get sick and throw up. <clears throat> Calm, reassure the patient. If any indication of shock is present, treat the shock. Again, supplemental O2. Position the patient. Keep the patient warm. Rapid transport. Initiate prompt, efficient transport. If it's indicated, we can request ALS backup. Perform reassessment throughout transport. And just let the hospital know that we're coming with an abdominal pain. Give them a heads up. Moving on to hematologic emergencies. These are emergencies that involve the blood and blood components. Some common hematologic conditions that may be encountered in the pre-hospital setting is anemia, sickle cell disease, and hemophilia. So anemia, this is a decrease in red blood cell volume. Anemia can be caused from, can be chronic anemia or it can be acute anemia. Acute may be a result from blood loss. They have a bleed somewhere. Chronic may be due to slow, slow blood loss. They have a bleed somewhere. It's just very, very slow. Lack of production or maturation of red blood cells as well. So remember, it's the red blood cells that carry oxygen. So if we are, a patient is anemic, they don't have as much or as much as enough red blood cells. So that is decreasing the oxygen carrying capacity of the blood. Because of this, patients can present as being pale and anemic patients often are easily fatigued, get short of breath with just a little bit of exertion. Sickle cell anemia, this is a hereditary disorder. It's most commonly found in African-Americans, Africans, those of Mediterranean, South and Central American and Middle, Middle Eastern origin. And during sickle cell, some red blood cells have an abnormal hemoglobin that has a sickle shape and those red blood cells do not carry adequate amounts of oxygen. Again, they take on a crescent or a sickle shape, become fragile, stiff, and rigid. Big concern or a problem because of the shape of those red blood cells, that sickle shape, they stick together, and that can cause occlusions of blood flow in the capillaries. 
So there is a normal red blood cell. You can see it has kind of has the round discus shape. In this case here, sickle cell, it has that crescent sickle shape. And again, they're stiff and kind of brittle. So they can stick together and cause an obstruction of blood flow. And again, these do not carry oxygen as well or not as well. With sickle cell, there are four common patterns of acute sickle cell crisis, all of which causes pain to our patients. So patients with sickle cell, oftentimes if we get dispatched to a patient suffering from sickle cell, they may be having what's known as a bone crisis. They're gonna have major pain in the back, large bones of the arms and legs. They can also present with acute chest syndrome, chest pain, possibly with shortness of breath and fever. Abdominal crisis, sudden constant abdominal pain, possibly with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. And joint crisis where they're having severe pain in their joints. Luckily for us, these patients typically, this is a pre-existing condition, obviously, they probably have already gone through this. They've had sickle cell crisis before. They know what it feels like. So when we get dispatched, they tell us, hey, it's because I have sickle cell. So signs and symptoms of sickle cell crisis, again, it may be bone or joint pain. It can present with fevers, chest pain, shortness of breath, fatigue, pale skin. In males, it can also cause a priapism, depending on where that occlusion is. Priapism, again, is a non-sexual erection. Tachycardia, ulcers, jaundice, tachycardia, ulcers on the lower legs. And depending on where that obstruction is, can cause blindness in one eye, excessive thirst, and urination in the patients as well. Our treatment for sickle cell is going to be at the basic level is going to be supportive. We're going to ensure an adequate airway, breathing, circulation, maintain adequate oxygenation, O2 sats at or above 94%. Other than that, there's nothing we're going to be able to do as basics. We can consider ALS backup. They're not going to do anything different other than give the patient pain medication to try to make them feel better. Hemophilia. It's a hereditary disorder in which clotting is impaired due to a missing clotting factor. So, their blood doesn't clot as easily. So what is normally considered a minor bleed to somebody that's not a hemophiliac can be life-threatening to these patients. With that being said, treatment of a bleed on somebody that does have hemophilia, treatment is going to be the exact same. We're going to use our traditional methods to try to stop bleeding. We just need to understand that it's probably going to be a much more difficult to control major bleeding if the patient does have a history of hemophilia. Other conditions can have thrombophilia, deep vein thrombosis. Patient with thrombophilia is basically the opposite of a hemophiliac. It is an abnormal clotting condition that results in hypercoagulability. These patients clot too much. Because they clot too easily, they're prone to getting blood clots. So they can get deep vein thrombosis or a DVT. Is a blood clot normally in the calf area. 
inside a vessel that commonly results from thrombophilia. Patient with a DVT typically presents with swelling of the leg, uh, edema, redness, increased warmth to the area, tenderness, and pain. And treatment for a DVT, and nothing we can do for it, just supportive measures transport the patient to the hospital. Gynecological emergencies. Gynecology deals with female reproductive system. Signs and symptoms of a gynecological emergency can include abdominal pain, vaginal bleeding, and abnormal vaginal discharge. And some of these gynecological emergencies can be life-threatening. So the female reproductive structures and functions. The vagina functions as the birth canal during childbirth. Ovaries are the primary sex glands. And the fallopian tubes extend from near each of the ovaries to the uterus that allows the egg to move from the ovaries to the uterus. Things like ectopic pregnancy, that it often uh, affects the fallopian tube. The egg doesn't make it all the way down to the uterus. It fertilizes and grows in the fallopian tube. The fallopian tube is not going to grow like the uterus does. So once that fetus gets to a certain point, the fallopian tube ruptures. Again, that causes an ectopic pregnancy. Ectopic pregnancies are a life-threatening condition. Uterus is the organ in which the egg is normally fertilized and the uterus develops and grows. The endometrium is the mucous membrane lining of the uterus. And the endometrium is sloughed off during the menses or the menstrual period. Sexual assault. You need to follow protocols for reporting sexual assault in the state of Texas. We are required to report all sexual assault allegations to law enforcement. So if somebody tells us they were sexually assaulted, we need to get law enforcement involved. Sexual assault can occur to both genders, but overwhelmingly it occurs in much more often in females than it does in males. Those victims of sexual assault oftentimes know their assailant, but do not report the incident. And sexual assault has both physical and psychological effects on the victim. Physical effects of the sexual assault include traumatic injuries, genital, rectal, swelling, bleeding, pain. They can be given a sexually transmitted disease and obviously can end in pregnancy as well. Psychological effects of sexual assault include anxiety, depression, fear, inappropriate feelings of guilt where the victim blames themselves for what happened. Flashbacks, nightmares, can end up having PTSD, emotional withdrawal, numbness, irritability.
We need to follow the sexual assault guidelines. We don't allow the patient to change, bathe, comb, or clean any part of their body. Again, they could potentially be washing away evidence. So we want to transport them without them cleaning up. If there are holes or tears in their clothing, we do not want to cut through those. Again, uh, treat it like a crime scene because it is. Don't touch or change the crime scene unless medically necessary to do so in order to care for the patient. This may be an instance where we don't clean wounds as well. Again, there may be skin cells or some type of DNA that is in that wound. And if we cleanse it, we may be washing away or destroying evidence. And for whatever reason, if we have to cut clothing off the patient in order to provide care, make sure that we do transport clothing along with the patient and leave that clothing with a police officer at the hospital. Be non-judgmental, provide a safe environment, respect confidentiality and privacy. And when talking to a sexual assault victim, we only ask questions that are pertinent to patient care. We want to do whatever we have to to make that patient feel comfortable. That may be skipping part of our assessment. They obviously probably aren't going to want us to assess and look. That's fine. Don't do it. They may not even want us to touch them and take vital signs. Again, our focus is to get them to the hospital. If they're relatively stable, conscious, start talking to us, they don't want us to touch them to take vital signs. Don't touch them and take vital signs. Just transport Make sure we document why we didn't take vital signs in, in round. Also, again, we're trying to make the patient feel comfortable. If, if we have a male-female partner truck, me and a female is my partner, and it's a female sexual assault victim, who do you think the female patient is going to be more comfortable with? Probably the female attendant. If that's the case, again, allow the female attendant to take the patient. Vaginal bleeding, non-traumatic vaginal bleeding. Bleeding may be related to the menses, period, or to medical problems such as hormonal imbalances, pelvic inflammatory disease, cancerous lesions, or onset of labor. Menarche is the onset of the menses or when the uh, patient gets their first period. Can occur in, in girls as young as 10 years of age. And the most common cause of non-traumatic vaginal bleeding is a spontaneous abortion, which is the medical term for a miscarriage. Signs and symptoms of a spontaneous abortion. Known or unknown pregnancy. Most miscarriages occur very early during pregnancy. So the patient may not even realize that they're pregnant and they're having a miscarriage. So again, those are questions that we have to ask. Is there any chances that you're pregnant? If they tell you no, why is there no chance that you're pregnant? Lower abdominal or pelvic pain, abdominal tenderness, vaginal bleeding may be significant, severe enough that it's actually causing shock. May have a rapid pulse or other signs and symptoms of shock as well. Patient may also present with just menstrual pain. Patient may have dysmenorrhea, which is severe pain during menstruation. You can have strong uterine cramping that causes severe pain. 
dysmenorrhea or that uh, severe pain during menstruation is often caused by hormonal balances. I have no idea how to pronounce that word, but it's abdominal pelvic pain in the middle of a menstrual cycle. It's caused by irritation of the peritoneum by a small amount of blood from the ovarian tissue leaking and getting onto the peritoneum. Another cause of uh, vaginal pain or lower pelvic pain could be ovarian cysts. These are fluid-filled sacs that form on the ovary. Signs and symptoms of an ovarian cyst include unilateral low abdominal pelvic pain only on one side, abdominal tenderness, vaginal bleeding, pain during sexual intercourse, or pain during a bowel movement. Endometriitis is inflammation of the endometrium commonly caused by infections. Signs and symptoms of endometriitis include abdominal pelvic pain or tenderness, fever, abdominal distension, vaginal bleeding or discharge, and discomfort during bowel movements. Are you starting to see a pattern? A lot of these conditions are going to have very similar signs and symptoms. Endometriosis is a condition where the endometrial tissue grow outside of the uterus, causing bleeding, inflammation, and scarring. Signs and symptoms of endometriosis, abdominal pelvic pain or tenderness, dysmenorrhea, vaginal bleeding, and pain during sexual intercourse or bowel movement. Pelvic inflammatory disease is an infection of the female reproductive tract, and it can be anywhere along that reproductive tract. Signs and symptoms include abdominal, abdominal pelvic pain or tenderness, abnormal or foul-smelling vaginal discharge, fever, chills, nausea, or vomiting, anorexia, loss of appetite, irregular vaginal bleeding or cramping, and pain during sexual intercourse. STD, sexually transmitted diseases. These are infections contracted through sexual contact. Most sexually transmitted diseases are caused by either bacteria, viruses, parasites, or fungi. Most common type of STDs are chlamydia, gonorrhea. And if left untreated, some STDs may lead to sepsis. Some common types of STDs and their causes. So gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia, those are all bacteria. HIV, herpes, genital warts, those are viral. And the two bottom ones down there are parasitic. The signs and symptoms of an STD include things like abdominal pelvic pain or tenderness, abnormal vaginal discharge, Nausea, vomiting, fever, chills, irregular vaginal bleeding or cramping, pain during sexual intercourse or urination, 
genital itching, redness, or swelling. And some can cause lesions or ulcers as well. So our assessment-based approach for gynecological emergencies. We're gonna start with our scene size up. Take your standard precautions, determine the nature of illness, mechanism of injury. If it does appear to be a crime scene, such as sexual assault, make sure that we do contact law enforcement, take steps to preserve the scene. Moving on to our primary assessment, again, focus on the ABCs, administer oxygen to maintain SpO2 sats at or above 94%. Pay attention to perfusion status, be on the lookout for a shock. If the patient, again, is showing signs and symptoms of shock, we treat accordingly. For things like vaginal bleeding, we can take steps to control external bleeding. We can use a pad to absorb vaginal bleeding but we do not pack or put anything into the vagina. So all we're basically doing is catching the blood. Categorizes as high priority for transport if the patient has any of the following signs or symptoms. Poor general appearance, unresponsive, responsive but not following commands, severe abdominal pelvic pain, or they're showing any signs and symptoms of shock. Secondary assessment, protect privacy and modesty. Careful where we ask questions at. Again, if we have to ask about sexual history, we don't want to do that in front of a large crowd. If we have to ask about vaginal discharge, probably don't want to do that in front of others as well. Be compassionate, professional, obtain a history, bottle signs, and if indicated to do so, perform a physical exam. Ask the following questions. We wanna know what their signs and symptoms are. When did they start? How long have they been going on? Have they been getting better or worse, staying the same? Again, how long have you had the symptoms? And was those onsets sudden or more of a gradual onset? What were you doing during that onset? Ask about allergies, last oral intake, past medical history, medications. And again, we have to ask questions about the possibility of pregnancy. Are you sexually active? Is there a chance that you're pregnant? Are you using contraceptives, et cetera? Again, past medical history, last menstrual period, is the patient having any vaginal bleeding? If so, how many menstrual pads have they saturated? Is that normal, that number of pads that you saturated, is that normal for you or is that heavier than normal, et cetera? Again, is there a chance that you're pregnant? If there is a chance, how many pregnancies have you had in the past? Any vaginal discharge, nausea and vomiting, pain during urination. Again, some of these questions are going to be uncomfortable for us to ask, but it is medically relevant and we do need to know.
Signs and symptoms uh, can include for gynecologic emergency, vaginal discharge, inner pain, abdominal pelvic pain or tenderness, nausea, vomiting, fever, chills, genital itching, redness, swelling. And again, in severe cases can show signs and symptoms of shock as well. Physical exam, examine the abdomen. Again, ask if there's vaginal bleeding. If the patient says they are having vaginal bleeding, we're gonna have to ask more questions. Are you passing any clots or is there any other tissue that you're passing as well? Use a pad to absorb vaginal bleeding again, but do not pack or insert anything into the vagina. And full set of vital signs. Care is going to be nothing but supportive. If it is a traumatic injury, consider spinal precautions, primary assessment, ABCs. Adequate oxygenation at or above 94, unless the patient is showing signs and symptoms of shock, then they get placed on supplemental O2. If there's any external bleeding, control external bleeding, place the patient in a comfortable position, quick and efficient transport. Genital urinary renal emergencies. Urology is the study of the urinary system in females and the genital urinary system, genital, genital urinary system in males. Organs of the female reproductive system are separate from those in the female urinary system. However, in males, some of the structures are shared. So when we talk about the genital urinary system, we are referring to males. Patients with genital urinary renal or renal conditions may experience abdominal pelvic pain. Structures and functions, urinary system produces, stores, and eliminates urine. Primary organ is going to be the kidneys. Kidneys filter the blood to excrete waste products into the urine. The kidneys also play a role in pH regulation and regulation of blood volume and pressures as well. So we have the kidneys, two kidneys. The kidneys each have a ureter attached to it. The ureters carry urine from the kidneys to the urinary bladder. The urinary bladder stores urine and then carries from the bladder, goes through the urethra and the urethra connects to the bladder to the outside world. And in men, the urethra serves both urinary and a reproductive function. So again, we have two kidneys. Each kidney has a ureter that leads to the bladder. The bladder stores the urine. And then we have the urethra that connects the bladder to the outside world. Urinary tract infection or UTI, most frequently caused by bacteria that enters through the urethra. Females are much more prone to UTIs. Uh, the elderly diabetics and patients who are immobile or catheterized also have higher instances in getting UTIs as well. And a UTI can be anywhere along that urinary tract. So it can be the urethra itself, the bladder, the ureters, kidneys, 
and the man can include an infection to the prostate as well. Signs and symptoms of UTI, abdominal pelvic pain or tenderness, blood in the urine. They can have cloudy urine, very strong foul odor to the urine as well. Question we have to ask, how does your piss smell? Don't ask it that way, but have you noticed any foul smell to your urine? Pain or burning with urination or intercourse? A sensation of a frequent or urgent need to urinate? Genital or flank pain? And again, this is an infection, so it can also cause fever or chills as well. UTIs are a very common cause of altered mental status, AMS, in elderly females as well. So that's just something to be aware of. Kidney stones, medical term is renal calculi. These are crystals formed in the kidneys, must travel through the urinary system to get past. It is hereditary, so family history makes you more predisposed. If you get dehydrated, you are more risk for getting a kidney stone as well. Stones are extremely painful for the patients. Could potentially be dangerous if they're untreated. The stones can lead to an obstruction and permanent kidney damage. So the stones form, and again, right here, you can see it's blocking that ureter. So urine cannot drain, backs up, and again, that can cause permanent kidney damage. Again, just showing some different sizes of kidney stones and what some of them may also look like as well. Some symptoms of a kidney stone. Abdominal pelvic pain or tenderness, severe back or flank pain over the patient's kidneys. Growing pain, fever, chills, abdominal urine color. What is normal? What is the normal color of urine if everything's healthy? Anybody know? What color should urine be if everything's good? Like a either clear or like a diluted yellow. So normal, healthy urine should be clear. The yellower it is, or the darker it gets, that may indicate things like dehydration, not enough fluid intake. Pain upon urination, frequent or urgent need to urinate, and can cause nausea and vomiting as well. We're going to go ahead, call it a day right here.